Why are you attempting to secure something? Why does this not work the way that I think it should? What it is that they need that can consume intelligence? You really need to know some programming language pretty well. If someone responds to you like that, put a little X next to their name. Destructive power that has to be your organization. This is Hack Chat, where red and blue teams unite. Hey everyone, this is Hack Chat. My name is Marco Figueroa. Today, I have a guest that he needs no introduction. I'm pretty sure if you're in the hacking industry, you've used this tool. I'm not going to introduce him. I'm going to let him introduce himself. My man, my friend, HD Moore, go ahead. Hey, Marco. Thanks for having me today. Uh, just a quick background. I've been working on security stuff for about 20 years. Uh, some of the products I worked on were Metasploit for about 15 years, uh, starting that project back in uh, 2003. And then since then, a uh, big laundry list of fun research projects, uh, Project Sonar, uh, the Recog Project, and most recently, Rumble. Nice, nice. Let's get into it, man. Um, the first time I met you, I want to go right into that. The first <laughs> time we met, I was at the uh, Caesars middle table during Black Hat. I'm rolling the dice, and right next to me, HD comes up, and I look. And then I relook. I'm like, HD? He's like, Marco, what's up? I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> so we start rolling. And one of my first questions to you is, man, why did you write Metasploit in Ruby? Why didn't you do it in Python? Do you remember what you told me? <laughs> yeah, Python sucks. Yes, <laughs> yes. So do you still feel that way about Python? Yeah, for the most part, there's a lot of things about the language that are just ugly, they're contradictory, they're, they're not good. Like, you've got the mix of functions and methods, you've got uh, the mandatory white space still drives me crazy. Uh, you've got so many different interpreters, so many different uh, compatibility issues with versions. You've got the two versus three split, the two deprecation. Um, I mean, there's some really there's some things that Python's really good at, right? Like, some of the audio processing stuff's really good. A lot of the uh, math and image processing and, and data science stuff is awesome. But the language itself just drives me crazy. <laughs> Do you still go... Ruby all the way, all the time? You know, lately I've actually switched to Go for almost everything. Yep. I used to do Go for anything that like has to be solid and, and runs for a while. Um, so all of Rumble's written in Go, for example, but uh, I was still using Ruby for like quick scripts and data processing and stuff. But lately, like I've gotten comfortable enough with Go that it's actually replaced Ruby for me as like my go-to for even just like basic CSV processing and uh, quick scripts. Wow. Really? I, I, I thought you were a Ruby lifer. You are, but now you, why, why did you go with the go? And, and for me, I start, I'm starting to see a lot of people write their tools in go It's picking up steam now. So do you, do you see that across the industry as well? Yeah, you're definitely seeing a big pickup of both Go and Rust lately. And uh, the big reason for it is just portability. Like when you build something, you build a Go binary or Rust binary, it actually just runs anywhere. Like you can mm -hmm. build widely compatible binaries and anyone can pick up and download and run. Like the biggest challenge I had working on Metasploit with Ruby backend was, okay, step one is install the right version of Ruby and then install all the dependencies and bundler, then the right gems and diagnose whatever build problems you have and then fix those problems to get the permissions right. And then maybe you can kind of sort of hopefully run Metasploit. And it was like, it was so much setup work just to get to the point of having a working interpreter. It's so awesome having a language where once it builds, you know, it's going to work. Yeah. So when we started, it was more like a community. Now it's an industry, these trade shows, black hat. How did you get into hacking anyway? Uh, I started like kind of pre, pre-internet, like very like uh, focused on phone lines and BBSs and 
uh, that whole um, bucket of things back in the day. Like, I love the fact that you could just pick any number out of a hat, dial it with a phone number and end up in a very, you know, weird country on a weird phone line on a weird modem, like talking to a radio station, talking to a Kmart HVAC system. Like, it's just crazy that you can just pick up a number and it can take you to some random place in the world. And I feel like um, that view of, uh, you know, exploring the dark really has carried me forward from the BBS days all the way into internet-wide scanning, into doing exploit dev and research and everything else. I love that feeling of kind of exploring the unknown. Nice. Did uh, you used to pick up any books or magazines or anything back in the day? Yeah, I still have a big bucket of them behind me, like Blacklisted 1411 and the early 2600s before they got way too political, mm-hmm. <laughs> things like mm-hmm. that. But I mean, really, uh, back then, uh, the gold mine really was getting like the the, the rainbow books, getting the Intel chipset manuals with all the instruction assembly references, uh, getting all the telco documents out of their dumpsters so you can figure out how their switches work. I still have like a bunch of telco equipment manuals that were pulled directly out of AT&T's dumpsters back in the early 90s. Uh, so it, you find it any way you can get it. I remember I finally found um, uh, advanced programming in the Unix environment book at a local um, thrift store, and I was so happy. Like for $5, <laughs> I got this book that normally ran like 60 bucks. And it was oh, the best man. book ever. And I kept that book for like 15 years before I finally gave it to a friend of mine. And same thing with TCPIP Illustrated, like all that stuff. I think these days, like books are a little bit less necessary because technology is moving so quickly. It's hard to write a book that's still relevant. Yeah. Um, but there's still a lot of fundamentals that are really good to have in paper forms. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Breakpoint. I, at least for me, you guys were the Google Project Zero of your day in, in the 2005 and six. I believe I believe it was that that time range. Can you discuss what you were doing there and how it like you transitioned into that and also it felt like you were doing that and the metasploit project yeah sure uh so like late 90s i ended up working for a government contractor for a bit building attack tools uh from there we spun off my first startup which is those defense and then spent about five and a half years there building out the ops team pandas team tools uh mssp backend vault scanning and i was kind of looking for a change i wanted to do something very product focused but also still security and at the time i was working on metasploit as kind of a side project and I got an offer to join uh, Breaking Point as like either the first or second employee, depending on how you look at it. And the cool thing about that product is it's very focused on building a, a single appliance that could like mass, like test a security device from every angle at once. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like an octopus box. You'd like wrap it around a firewall from every single port. It would send traffic through every port, every way. It would, it, it would measure both like performance characteristics, like how many sessions can it ramp up, how quickly. It also measure things like IPS performance, like can this detect my exploit when I encode it this particular way? So it's really cool because they it was one of the first jobs I had it was literally the first job I had where they wanted me to work on Metasploit <laughs> as opposed to or somewhat embarrassed by it. So it was cool because I got to work on my open source project on the side and I got to use a lot of the um, work that I was doing on Metasploit on our actual commercial product. And those things went hand in hand for a very long time. We got to build a really cool research team, got to do a lot of fuzzing work. We found a lot of bugs. We worked with a lot of zero day. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it felt like when you were working there, like Metasploit took off. And I, when did it really hit, like everybody started using it and the community really got into Metasploit. I just feel like it was like not an overnight success, but like 2005 or six or something like that. I'm not too sure where it's just like Metasploit, Metasploit, Metasploit everywhere. Yeah, it took a while to get there for sure. The first uh, started in 2003 and basically just got made fun of for years straight about how crappy your exploits were and how it was a script kitty tool and it was mm-hmm. terrible. And, you know, starting in uh, early 2004, um, Spoon M joined the project. He basically started off saying, your code sucks. I'm like, okay, fix it. So he did. 
So that was a great way to, <laughs> to bring someone on the team. And then uh, Matt Miller started shortly afterwards. And those guys were awesome. They really helped kind of build the core of the product. Between the three of us, we were able to kind of build this whole like Legos kit of exploit dev and shellcode and coding. And we thought it was a really great way to preserve um, all the cool research the security community was doing in a functional form. So if someone had a cool way to like bypass an IDS or to exploit this bug or to do a you know egg hunt, we would actually put that into code and maintain that code forever, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's always this working example of that cool research where most stuff, once the research is done, there's a proof of concept put out there, that proof of concept doesn't work five minutes later, right? <laughs> Let alone a year later or five yeah. years later. So it's a really cool way to kind of preserve all that work. And when we did the rewrite from Perl into Ruby, uh, we had to basically push forward all that stuff all over again and keep that rolling. So it's kind of like this big, you know, Katamari amoeba of security research constantly rolling forward, trying to provide like a functional implementation of all the cool stuff the community is doing. Ooh. How did Rapid7 approach um, you about like acquiring the Metasploit project and what made you consider selling Metasploit to Rapid7? If that's the way it went down, I don't know. Yeah, at the time I'd been about, uh, spent about four years at Breaking Point. Uh, we we're building some really cool stuff, um, but I had my kid on the way. Uh, I was starting to think a lot more about doing things with the project full time. Um, I'd already been doing training for Metasploit like uh, once or twice a year anyways. That was kind of paying for all of our hosting bills and helping kind of you know fund the project. Uh, so that was great, but it wasn't really a full-time project. It was still every night, every weekend for years, just trying to keep things running. I still had a day job and I had a startup job too. It wasn't like a you know, nine to five job by any means either. Um, so it was a lot of work. And then uh, kind of, I think it was like March or April of that year, um, one of the folks at Rap7 reached out and said, hey, we love doing integration in Nexpo as a menace boy. And like, so the idea is like, you can bone scan something and then you can click the report and immediately exploit it directly from the bone scan interface by linking to the Metasploit web UI. So we built that proof of concept and it was really cool. It actually worked pretty well. And then customers tried it and did not like it whatsoever. They did not want the ability to exploit things directly from Nexpo. They thought that was terrifying. <laughs> so, but it was a good proof of concept. It was a good chance to kind of figure out, you know, how well do we work together as a team? Uh, I was working with Corey Thomas, who at the time was head of marketing. He's now the CEO. Um, it was really good chance to just kind of get to the team, get a feel for how we could build things together. And so that kind of led to more conversations about, well, what if we did this? What if we combine these things? What if we did deeper integrations? And my biggest view of, well, my biggest concern, of course, was like, how do we keep this thing open source and vibrant and make sure the project's not going to die anytime soon? Because mm -hmm. I've already been carrying this thing for like six years. I don't want to, I don't want to lose it now, right? I feel like it, the only outcome that I would accept is one that led to a much better open source project. So I think we got there, but there's a whole you know story behind that, I'm sure, too. Yeah, yeah. When you started at Rapid7, what was your initial position? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think they started off, uh, I was running the Metasploit department, which is kind of a little subsidiary team. We started off like under marketing, I think, not even engineering, just because it was easier to, to get running that way. And I think they made me the CSO just so, um, because we painted a target on Rapid7's back by me joining. Uh, mm -hmm. They're like, okay, now it's your problem to deal with that, too. So I had a CSO job. Um, helping with like wrangle or IT and security response stuff, but also running the Metasploit team, building out the Austin offices. Um, I helped, you know, build out our first two offices here in Austin um, and then kind of grow the team and get the product where it was. And then about 2013 or so, uh, we rolled the Metasploit team back into kind of the greater engineering organization finally and kind of treated it like a real product now that it was actually off the ground and had, you know, customers and all the normal things that go with building an enterprise product. Um, and then I switched over to research for the last few years there. Whoa. Nice. And when did you, did you leave? And then wh where did you transition to after Rapid7? Uh, well, uh, so this may tie into kind of future conversation, but uh, around uh, uh, 2016 or so, uh, I was having some pretty nasty health problems. Okay. Uh, my spine had collapsed. I do compress this. Like I barely move my arm. Very oh. people knew about it. Even people I worked with Rapid7 didn't realize like I was pretty much disabled for quite a bit of time. Um, was that, was that an accident? 
Yeah, I was maybe jumping waves on a jet ski, feeding loaves of bread to a dolphin when it happened. So I'm sure I had something to do with it, but it was also like not being healthy and just being in a chair for 20 hours a day for 10 years straight probably didn't help. You know, so definitely late, that. later in the conversation, I was going to say you look like fit. You look like an athlete. Oh, you know, stuck and, my quarantine 15 going, but you know, I'm trying. <laughs> so, um, you have the opportunity to to work anywhere, anywhere you want. I'm pretty sure people would, you know, hire you. Why did you pick your last gig? I know you exited uh, last month, and I'm pretty sure you're doing Rumble uh, full time now. But what made you choose that company, Atreidemus? Yeah, mm-hmm. Tradis. Um, the cool thing about it was, uh, so I started doing consulting work uh, in 2016, just because I was I was at home, my spine hurt, I was trying to figure out what to do. I didn't want to do wrap seven job anymore. So I started doing some research stuff. I had a couple ideas for businesses that I wanted to test out. Part of that was like building a consulting practice on top of that. So I did some work with a bunch of different security firms as subcontractors in a couple of cases. And I've been working with the, the Tradis team as a subcontractor. And I just really like working with them. They're a really nice team. They're cool. They, um, they're the most empathetic employer for their I've ever worked with like they really cared about the health of their employees the health of their uh, customers and at the time my health being you know not so great it, was, it meant a lot to me that they were willing to work around you know uh, my doctor visits and things like that I ended up getting uh, two rounds of disc replacement surgery uh, and that set me out for a bit too and then I had like lift limit so about eight months at the time that I was like doing subcontract work for a trade I was having like, all kinds of nasty medical issues and it just blew me away how compassionate they were and how willing to work around um, all that stuff I was and I've never worked for a company that was uh, able to provide that much um, flexibility. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I I like about big companies, I call them Titanics, your Intel's where I used to work at um, Google's Facebook's, you know, in a way, I don't want to say they limit you, but they put roadblocks in lawyers. So you can't like do side projects like you do. Right. But when you're on a when you're in a startup or a company that just went public, you know, it's more like a speedboat. It like <laughs> you want to do it, do it like go ahead and make that happen. So I, I understand why now you went you went that route and, and look at the cool projects you're you're developing. But it's interesting. You went you went through some ordeal in, in 2016 um, switching gears. What is a critical skill that you would recommend for someone starting in cybersecurity? Um, it kind of comes down to you really need to know some programming language pretty well. It doesn't matter which one it is. It can be Ruby, Java, uh, JavaScript, Python, Go. Pick something, be, be comfortable writing code because there's so much stuff we do today that if you can't automate it, you can't script it, you really can't understand it that well. You really can't verify your intuition and say, this thing looks like it's broken, but how do I prove that? So I feel like that's the hardest thing for a lot of folks is getting at least a little bit of programming experience and being comfortable kind of scripting stuff up real quick. You don't have to be like a you know, enterprise developer by any means, but just getting the point that you can do that. And I think like step two there is really understanding both TCP IP networking and web applications because those drive so much of what we do every day. It doesn't matter what kind of security work you're doing. Those things will be relevant to your job somewhere. I need to get a bell, like a ding. Like when nuggets are dropped, I need to, I need to get a bell. That's, that's my goal this week. Because you're right. I had a few people on the show and they said the same thing, right? Pick up a language, understand it, go in and out. But I like what you said about the web apps and the TCP. Um, I, I completely agree. How did you get into um, vulnerability discovery? And, and did you read books? Did you, you know, do any courses? 
Uh, well, I started off like um, with a bunch of hoodlums on, our, on RC, like a lot of folks do. Like mm-hmm. we came out of the BBS days. We met up in like where's channels in RC and drone base and all that stuff in FNet. And that turned into like just hanging out with a bunch of, you know, hooligans. And a lot of that was, um, you know, having fun exploiting stuff right in the early days, like back before this became a professional thing. It wasn't like people were going after and hacking big companies. It was mostly just hacking each other because we thought it was hilarious. Yeah. So it was a lot of like trolling your friends and messing with them and stuff like that. That led to like, oh, okay, let me go find a bug in this thing. Let me go find a way to exploit this thing and dig into it. And that eventually became a career. And when I got my first job doing security work in like late 90s, um, I was like, wow, I can actually like find bugs and then go exploit them. This is great. And, you know, haven't really looked back since then. It's very much like uh, finding vulnerability is almost like a superpower. You go from being, you know, limited to here's what you're allowed to do. So like, no, no, I'm just going to walk through that door anyways. <laughs> which <laughs> is break through. Now I think it's, it's a lot of information overload. There's so much things coming out. It's like, what do what, you know, you almost have ADHD in terms of what to focus on because this is so cool and that's so cool. So it's a lot of people ask me for advice, right? I always say, Hey, what, what is it that you want to do? And then I could, provide value by telling you what I think you should do, right? You don't have to listen to me, but this is what I did and and you could do that, right? And I tell people like enter in cybersecurity. I'm like, exactly, learn learn coding and take a speed reading course because you're gonna read a lot. Like I, I, I always tell them that, take a speed reading course. There's always going to be, you know, books that you have to read, blocks you have to read. The faster you could go through it, the faster you could digest it, you know, the more, the more information, you know, you know, I always believe in winners and people that don't win, which is the opposite, which is like losers, but I don't like saying losers, but people that don't win. And what changes that I believe is the key to success of like mentoring and coaching, which opens unlimited, you know, potential for that person is they don't believe in themselves. So I think as a coach for me, if, if I'm mentoring or I'm assisting anyone, I try to go ahead and give them value. How do you help people that do not see what you see in them? I think it's difficult. Um, because there's sometimes someone's lack of self-confidence, um, looks more like lack of motivation Mm. and, you got to tease those two things apart. There's definitely Ooh. scenarios where folks are not actually motivated and they don't really care that much. Like, you know, there's a, you know, I'm sure I saw this thread on Twitter somewhere, but someone's talking about how, you know, one of their pen testing friends um, complains about not getting the, the cool job or not being able mm-hmm. to work for a boutique firm, whatever it happens to be. But every night they're just playing Call of Duty for four hours straight. It's like, well, that's a priority at some point. At some point you have to say, I care enough about this thing. I'm going to spend my time in my, my free time and, you know, every waking moment I can to get better at it. And, that kind of goes up against some people's view of work, which is like work should be what you do to pay the bills so that you can live. So it's hard to really say. I think in some cases, uh, folks are being sabotaged by their lack of self-confidence. And other times they just want to have a regular life. And sometimes that means trade-offs with work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny that you say that. I always say, look, if you're happy where you're at, you know, cool, play those call of duties. But if you're not happy and you're not satisfied, you need to grind. You need to put in the work. There's no substitution for hard work. And I think trusting that process of just grinding every night. I remember, you know, I knew cybersecurity, hacking, the hacking industry, when I used to call it back in like 2005 and six, I knew it was for me. 
right? And I was like, look, I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to go ahead and grind. I don't have a job in it. I, I don't even have a job in IT. I worked at Home Depot. I have my first paycheck that reminds me. And what I did was I was like, I'm just going to trust the process every day. Step closer, step closer and move forward. And what I found was that I was getting better every day, right? That pain and threshold for me, I think built confidence, but not only that, a lot of people quit after six months because they don't see that result, right? I worked at Home Depot for a year and a half before I got my first IT job at Mercedes Benz, right? Doing desktop support. And I was like, I, now I got my foot in the door. Now I'm going to go even harder because I'm just trusting the process, right? And one thing that I found, like, I think it was my second DEF CON. I said, man, everybody here is pen testers. I don't see defenders. I, I, I want to be a pen tester. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to learn reverse engineering. Right. I was like, okay, there's not a lot of pen testing jobs out there. I'm going to, you know, figure out how can I get a job on a defense doing reverse engineering? And that was malware. And that was at the time it started to pick up and explode and stuff like that. And, you know, I found my niche just like looking at, okay, this is my passion. I know it is. And how do I curve my own lane that I'm not seeing and trust that process? So, you know, for me, I, I would say the same thing for anyone. If you have the passion, you have the grind and you're not there yet, push through that pain to get there. So that was a long winded reply to what you said, but it, it motivates me to hear, you know, you say something like that because a lot of people you see on Twitter, oh, I didn't get this job or whatever. And it's like, okay, you didn't get it right now. Are you willing to put in that work? So that's, that's important. So when did it dawn on you that you really were finding good at finding vulnerabilities, writing exploits? When, when did it hit you? Um. I don't think I'm good at it now. So I don't think I ever was really like, like I'm definitely worse at it now than I was before. And never really thought I got good. Like the folks I looked up to when I grew up were, you know, the, the Teso team, um, all the ADM guys, like folks who were kind of the early days of doing crazy, crazy exploit dev. Uh, mm -hmm. Folks like Mark Dowd, who just did amazing levels of reverse engineering. Like I never felt like I was good, but I felt like I would put the sweat into figuring something out. So like my first stupid exploit I worked on was like a real remote memory corruption bug. Um, that thing was like an Apache chunk encoding overflow. And it was sending like 50 megabytes of data in this crappy Perl script. And it eventually got it to work. And it just meant shipping away at it and shipping away at it. Like I never was, I never took a formal programming class. I never really understood how like C worked until years into my career. It just took a really long time for me to kind of get there. And I feel like even these days, like as you get older, learning new stuff actually feels like it's harder. It feels like your brain does not want to learn new things. It complains. It says, no, no, no. Like I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm not feeling confident at this. Like I'm already a senior at what I'm doing. Therefore, I sh this should be easy. And it never gets easy. Like I've been uh, like, I tell my kids, like, you know, you're learning something because you don't like it because your brain says, no, this sucks. No, I want to quit. Like even once you get older and once you feel like you're established in a particular industry, like you can definitely tell when you're learning because your brain is not a fan of what's going on. Like, <laughs> how do you, so, how know, do you like, push through that pain? Have you trained um, your mind to push through it? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the two steps are think about the outcome you want. Like, hey, what I really want is a shell in this box. And I'm going to find a way to get there one, one way or another. I'm going to get mad at this box. I'm going to get so angry with this stupid virtual machine that I will get a shell on if I have to, whatever it is, right? So that helps to think about the outcome. Another part is like, 
just take one step at a time. Like, okay, what's the very first thing I have to do? Well, let's get the heat groomed. Let's make sure the memory looks like this. Okay, now they are that. Okay, how, what can I control here? Let's make that part reliable. And just inch forward. It's so, um, I think one of the problems we have with media today, especially how we represent security research, is when you see someone's amazing blog post or exploit dev, you're reading them all in one sitting of like five minutes. It's not super clear that they agonize over that for a year and a half to get to that point. And that's why it's just kind of unreasonable expectations because it's so quick to consume this information and so mm. difficult to really create it and do the research and the work behind it. I think it just, it makes us um, doubt ourselves that we're taking too long or too slow when we try to do it ourselves. So at least for my case, I feel like I've never really been good at it, but I'll keep chipping away at something to get there. Yeah, I tweeted about that, I, I think um, a month ago, right? I, I tweeted, look, no one sees the hours, the blood, the sweat, the tears that you put in. All they see is the end product, but they don't see <laughs> that grind, right? How many hours you put in, the things you do. And, and you know, they think it's easy. Like, oh, I could have did that. It's like, there's a lot of research that goes behind it. And, you know, you got to keep focusing, keep doing, you know, what is your motivation to keep innovating, doing pro cool projects and taking yourself to that next level? Well, if you, you mentioned before about like how it's gotten very ADHD trying to keep up with everything. And, you know, especially this, you know, being in security for 20 years now, I, I just gave up. Like, I'm not going to be able to be good at anything anymore. Right? I feel there's only very few things I can be better than average at now. And I just have to pick which one those, those are. Like, I'm no longer good at exploit dev. Um, once Heap started getting super crazy, once uh, you know, ASLR became a thing everywhere, it was like, this is starting to become less fun for me. Like, I like getting a shell quickly thing. Now it's more of like, ah, I'd rather go work on logic bugs or discovery or things like that. So I think for me, it's it's really two pieces. It's uh, um, having a very clear goal. Like, I want to do this really cool thing, and I know I can get there if I do all the work, and I just have to you know, chip away at that one day at a time until I get all those pieces together where I can connect them like Voltron and finally make this thing happen. And for me, that's really exciting. When I've been working on a project for months, and I finally have all the components that are ready to go, they connect together and actually get the results I wanted. Like, especially with network discovery work, I love that stuff because you take all these tiny little fingerprints all over the place and you finally connect all of them, then you have like, oh, it's a toaster. You actually know what the device actually is, but it takes like building so much little work to get there. But I like that process. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's the same way. You know, if I was 20 years old, I would tell myself like the same thing, trust the process. But I think I would say, you know, learn, be self-aware and learn how to learn. Right. Because there now there's so much stuff, right? A lot of people go wide and want to know a lot rather than deep in one subject. And, and I find myself, you know, constantly in, in like two lanes, you know, and, and trying to always go deep in those two lanes and everything else is like, okay, I know I'm not going to be a web developer, right? I just got to understand how things work, but that's not my lane. That's not what I want to do. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting times, man. Uh, what have you been doing during this lockdown or, or just quarantine, you know, the COVID for the last, I think it's nine months already. We're, we're into this. Yeah. I mean, I, I got lucky. So I started a company uh, a couple of years ago, uh, rumble network discovery mm -hmm. and it's, you know, running it solo until uh, about a month ago. Uh, so there's unlimited amounts of work. It's like legal accounting, uh, business stuff, funding, everything else in between. So I have not had a, <laughs> I haven't really had a weekend off in a couple of years. 
And so from that perspective, like lockdown's been great. I've got a really good excuse not to leave the house. I don't have to go travel for meetings anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I don't lose the the time getting to and from a meeting for something. I don't have to worry about putting on pants half the time. Like um, these are all, it's, it's, you know, or fancy pants at least in that sense. But um, I feel like, like at least lockdown for me has actually been really helpful for being able to focus on work. I know other folks, it's been difficult for them, especially folks who get their energy from going outside and meeting people. But I've always been an introvert. So for me, being in my cave 20 hours a day has actually been pretty good. Yeah. Same, same here. Same here. I, I love, I think I love to be in front of a computer. And like I was saying earlier, uh, before we started, it feels like the IRC days where you, there were no iPhones or laptops that, you, <laughs> you know, they were laptops, but they were like $3,000, right? At the time I wasn't, you had to have your keyboard in front of your monitor, your CRT, and just like do work. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm there, I'm back in 2000 and you know, two, three, four, where I was just in the basement going at it. So I am enjoying it as well. You know, let me, let me ask you, so you had all these surgeries and everything and you look fit, right? What, what did you do after like the surgery and you recovered? Did you just say, Hey, I'm going to focus on my health. Uh, well, there's that's some other stuff going on with life too. Um, I ended up uh, getting divorced shortly after my second surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that definitely helped kind of think through things. Uh, I actually recently remarried uh, last year, so that was awesome too. Um, Congrats! Yeah, my scars there—I don't know if you can see them anymore—but uh, they basically went through the front of the neck and carved a bunch of stuff out, and it left me with basically six months of uh, not really being able to move much. Another six months of recovery on it, with like a ten-pound lift limit for a lot of it. So. Uh, all that really together um, really led me to going for a really, like at the time it was pretty heavy as well. Like, especially with all the back surgery, not being able to move and stuff. Like I was probably up like 60, 70 pounds above where I should have been. Um, so not the happiest camper in the world because I could barely move and I was overweight and unhappy about all that. Plus the horrible amounts of pain that go with spine surgery. Mm-hmm. So coming out of that, um, I spent probably two hours a day, every single day, just walking, just getting to the point that I can move around, like just move my body you just walk some direction and yeah. you know not even like walking in a park i just walk down the middle of the city i'd walk around the entire town i'd walk through downtown i'd come back i'd go through you know find a park a couple miles away walk to it come back to it start off walking maybe a mile at a time a couple miles at a time um i think about three or four months in i was down about 30 pounds already just from doing that no other real change um and was up to like walking five six miles a day and it was good because it gave me some time to clear my head to think about stuff like it kind of Maybe I was, I've been in such kind of like a constant rush mode of, you know, being on, you know, being on the internet constantly, dealing with emails, responding to stuff, finding bugs, writing software, fixing stuff. Like you just get that kind of like super manic mode all the time of trying to like keep up with everything and forcing yourself to be disconnected for a couple hours a day while you walk around. It was really good for me to slow down my brain a little bit, think about what I wanted to do, figure out my priorities in life, uh, think about, you know, deeper problems, think about technical problems in a way that was difficult to do. Um, I'm not really big on like, you know, uh, like, I like music, but I generally like silence better to hear my own thoughts, if you will. So I spent hours a day basically just walking around and that eventually got to the point that I could run a little bit, jog a little bit. And then um, last November, I ran like 14 miles straight my first time. So got half marathon in um, and, um, you know, I keep breaking my toe. So <laughs> I currently can't run right now, but I got a free zero runner I use in the meantime. But so once I get my x-rays done next week, I can hopefully get back to running again soon. But um, yeah, so I, I love running. I think it's great because you, you run as fast as you can to get someplace and then you still got to come back. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's something to be said for having the second, the second side of it to really, um, so uh, th- that's how you deal with your stress. Anytime your stress and cortisol is running through, uh, your veins, you, you take a, a long walk or a run. Yeah, run as far as you can, as long as you can. And then you got to figure out how to come home. You <laughs> so. get the, you get the run as high. 
Yeah, it's good. I mean, you, well, you start off like the first 10 minutes of running is so miserable, even like after, you know, running probably 30, 40 miles a week for a little while before my legs really went out on me. Um, you know, it's the first 10 minutes still sucks. After you get 10 minutes into it, your, you know, endorphins kicking a little bit, things aren't quite as bad. And then when you're done, like, wow, like you actually feel like, wow, that was amazing. I feel pretty good. So it's actually been helpful and it helps your brain kind of, I, know, I feel like I've been uh, faster to think about problems and better at programming as a result of, you know, running and more cardio for sure. Do you, do you run and immediately after coming home, just jump on the computer or from having all these ideas run and, and do stuff or you do like a cool down and, and then you get back on? Um, maybe half an hour in between, but yeah. yeah, it definitely helps me. Like, it's kind of like, you know, the thoughts you have when you're in the shower, the same thing you have when you're like going for a long walk or a long run or a long swim. Like it's all, it kind of helps you like, um, you know, focus on, you get rid of a lot of the noise and really just focus on one thing at a time. You know, I, I always call ourselves people like us, um, mental athletes, right? Because, you know, athletes go out there, you know, they play baseball, professional athletes, they have their thing. We are, you know, professional mental athletes where we're in front of our computers for hours and hours at a time. How do you stay focused for a long period of time? I know you just said, you know, you like silence, right? But for me, it's, it's, there's a routine, right? I have a routine to like prime my brain to say it's go time, right? I have a scent, the scent is on. I have specific playlists that I need to listen to that gets me geared up and then, you know, certain headphones. So I'm like, it's like priming myself to get into that zone where I need to be to get work done. What do you do? Uh, I've gotten used to like knowing my, my brain and my body a bit more now. I feel like for the first few hours in the morning, I'm just usually doing support emails, sales calls, stuff that's like just a uh, very quick response stuff, catching up on things. Then I get, then at that point, I can usually focus on building something like working on a bigger code base or working on this feature or doing more research. But by three o'clock, my brain is gone. I can't think about anything. So I, the way I've been doing trade-offs so far is when I, when I can no longer think straight, I go for a walk, I go for a run, I do something and make my body do some work instead when my brain's taking a break and they come back and then I'm like awake again. It's good. So I feel like it's a good trade-off. Like whenever I feel like I'm running out of energy and I'm just, you know, mindlessly clicking through Reddit, I'll go find something else to do. That's more productive. Like kind of kick myself out of the chair and be like, all right, go for a walk. Okay. Go grab groceries, uh, jump on the treadmill, something. Nice. Uh, what time do you wake up? I don't know. Just between what, 5 a.m. or between 3 a.m. and 9 a.m. these days. It really okay. depends on the day. It ranges. It ranges. Yeah. Usually around 7 or 8. Yeah. Oh, man. That's... So you said, let me, let me get this straight. After 3, your brain's mush. Do you take the walk to get back into, you know, the frame of mind? Get back where you need to be and then come back in? Usually I don't really get back into things until after dinner again. I feel like around, um, you know, after I feed the kids and, you know, food and all that, I'm usually back on track around 7 or so. Got a few more hours of feeling pretty productive and then i kind of wind down but it definitely depends on the day i used to be kind of an all night i worked graveyard shift for like 12 years straight so this whole morning thing is pretty new for me yeah what do you what do you do when you've hit that wall and your energy is like done right you go to sleep you wake up the next morning and you want to continue what process do you have in place or, or what do you do? How do you think of things to tackle and continue when you know that yesterday you hit that wall and you're having this big problem and today will be a grind. There'll be a fight to figure out the answer that you need to solve that problem. 
Do you wake up understanding that today is going to be a 10 hour, 15 hour day and there's <laughs> going to be issues? Like, yeah, those are definitely days I wake up at 3 a.m. and just jump straight into it because I, I'm not going to be able to sleep right anyways. I feel like if I'm not worried about the problem, then I, I won't be able to sleep. So I'll get three or four hours of sleep. I'll hop up. I'll chug some coffee and I'll grind through till about 11 a.m. straight. And then usually by that point, I'm, I'm ready to do all the boring stuff for the day. Oh, you know, there's there's sometimes my brain clicks on is like, nope, you don't want this pain. Like, seriously, you, you're going to you're going to go through this pain and it's hard. And I, I like there's this countdown that I do five, four, three, two, one act do <laughs> make it happen. Like, you're not going to talk me out of grinding because the grind is going to be hard. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about rumble. Uh, what you've created. Take me. Take me through that. Take me through what made you decide to go down this lane. I've been doing kind of like offensive security work forever. And it seems like I've ever been on the consulting side, actually breaking this stuff, or mm-hmm. like the research R&D and product side where I'm like building a product to automate some of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that we kept running into with every pen test I've ever been on, with every product I've ever built, is the discovery phase. Like what's out there? What's on the network? What's the network scope? Like I can't tell you the number of times we've told a client, hey, this network over here, it's actually full of vulnerable stuff and you never tested it because you didn't know it was there. And so that understanding, like, where, one, where is your network? Where, what networks do you have? What's on them? And what are those actual devices? And networks have gotten really crazy lately. Like, you've got a lot more consumer equipment sitting on corporate networks. You've got a lot more hybrid cloud stuff, crazy SDN, virtualization, all that stuff in between. So um, IT networks have gotten more and more complicated, and the tools really haven't kept up. Um, the two kinds of tools you typically see security teams using for IT inventory are an IT-focused tool, like your SolarWinds type stuff that's based on authenticated credentials, your land sweepers, things like that, mm-hmm. where you give it a credential, it scans everything and tells you things about what's on the network, which is great as long as you have credentials and network access to it. Mm-hmm. Then the other side, which are more common, that security teams are using their vulnerability assessment systems or using their firewalls or SIMs as inventory. They're basically using the, the secondary output of these existing tools as if it was the inventory for the network. So for me, I looked at this and like, you know what, we really need a tool that just does an amazing job of telling you what's on the network and that's it doesn't try to sell you a risk score, doesn't try to you know, do vulnerability scanning, doesn't require credentials to do any of this stuff. But doing that is really hard because you have to like, you know, how do you scan firewall machines and identify things like their MAC addresses and host names and OS, even though you can't directly talk to them half the time. And so we do a lot of really crappy stuff in Rumble. Rumble's like if you were doing exploit dev, but instead of wanting a shell, you just wanted to identify what the device was, we do the same level of like crazy research. Like uh, we'll pull SNP entries out of a neighboring switch to tell you what a given Windows machine is running. We'll do all kinds of crazy fingerprinting of different like UPnP and SS, you know, SSDP services. Uh, we find ways to pull MAC addresses out of encoded strings and TLS certificates. So any possible way, hook or crook, we can tell you what a device is, we'll do that. And so it's, it's a really cool kind of research challenge, which is with no credentials and almost no setup, how can I tell you everything on the network really quickly? And that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. So... Has this been going on for, when did you go ahead and, and start the project? It's been more than a year already. Yeah, around uh, 2018 is when I got up and running with it, but, uh, and I was doing it side by side with the traders for a little while. They've been, they were really good about letting me kind of run my side business for a while. And then they became the side business <laughs> and they were, they're really friendly about that. Like I started off as a subcontractor and wound down my time there until finally I was doing part-time work with them again. Um, so it's been about two years and we've, uh, I think March, 2019 was when we did beta, um, and we've got about 3,500 users now, 125 customers. Uh, we've got uh, three people signed on to join the team, hopefully four soon. Um, just, uh, yeah, so lots of stuff in progress and it'll be like a real thing soon. Nice, nice. Um, are you looking for VCs or not yet? Uh, we haven't announced anything yet, but we, we sorted out some uh, 
like bootstrapped everything up to the point that we're profitable and then ended up raising a really small seed round anyways, uh, just because the the terms were good and the, the VCs were great. Uh, so we'll probably announce more of that next year. Nice. Nice. Now let's get into the story about when you were in Vegas, 3 a.m. This is, I tell this story all the time when we talk about like craps or gambling. I want you to tell the story you told me that day that, that we met in person. It was during, um, I forgot what year, Blackout or Defcon, and, you know, out late one night going to like all the various parties and stuff. And I like the game crafts because there's lots of things going on. Usually it's not a single deal being dealt. It's There's all the roles, all the side bets. It's fun watching the people. There's a lot of stuff around crafts that I just find really fascinating about how folks interact with the game, not just the game itself. Mm-hmm. So I was stumbling back into the, you know, casinos at 3 a.m. There's mostly all the high dollar tables, the only ones open still. Um, so I went to a table that's mostly empty. I was like, okay, I'll just roll for a little bit. It'll be fun. And this guy shows up and, you know, you know, early thirties kind of guy wearing a suit. Uh, he's got a, a lady on his arm in this big suit, like suitcase. And I realized he's handcuffed to the suitcase. Uh, and so they stop the game. He puts a suitcase on the table and starts dumping out cash on the table and it's 20 minutes. So for 20 minutes straight, this man is counting out cash on the table. And I'm like, I want to go to bed, man. I'm like, I just want to roll a couple more times to go to sleep. This is it. So now, finally, now, let cash. me, let me, let me bring this in. So in Vegas, if you've never been to the craft table and you have a lot of money, they count each dollars so the cameras can see what it is so if you have ten thousand twenty thousand they take every single bill and place it on the table and have the pit boss confirm and then they give the guy the chips so that's like 10 15 minutes to count all that money now go ahead oh yeah so it's only me and this dude and the lady on his arm at the table that's it it's totally empty quiet middle of the night and so 15 minutes of waiting for this guy's money to be counted, like 50 grand and like, you know, hundreds, they finally say, okay, he put, so I wasn't, I was rolling because I was, you know, basically playing before I showed up. So normally in the craps, there's two main bets, like pass bet or don't pass bet. Don't pass is kind of your jerk move. That says, I think the person rolling is going to fail. Mm-hmm. So the guy puts all $50,000 in the no pass line. I immediately hit my number and he loses all of it. Like this. Yep. You and hit a so seven I made, or 11. I made about $20 and he lost $50,000. <laughs> and the worst thing is he brings the suitcase up and does it again. So an hour goes by and he keeps playing on the don't pass bar and he keeps losing $50,000 a pop on it. And I made about $60, but I was just laughing my ass off at that point. I thought it was the funniest <laughs> thing. This guy kept betting against me this ridiculous amount of money. And I was like, I'm going to bed. This is ridiculous. Yeah, that, was, that was my experience. I, I tell you for three rolls, usually three rolls is around three minutes. So around three minutes, everyone put, place your bets, you roll. But when you have someone that's bringing out this cash and they have to count it every single time, that's what happens. So I, I love that. What is next for you? Uh, Rumble's been great. I'm uh, looking forward to growing the business, having more customers, doing more cool innovation and network scanning and network discovery work. Um, I love the mix of like solving real world problems and research I get to do. Um, and we're just really excited to build the team and do more. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your time, HD. It was fun. Pleasure. I can't wait until all of this is over so we can go to a con, hang out, chill. Do you have any last words or anything? Oh, no. Thanks again, Marco. It's been great. It's great to catch up again and hope everyone's uh, safe and happy out there. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You take care. I'll see you guys next time.